Father Sherman holds the chair in Fundamental Moral Theology at the University of Fribourg. He is the author of By Knowledge and By Love, Charity and Knowledge in the Moral Theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, a work that, as many of us know, is normative in the literature. Father Sherwin is a director of the St. Thomas Aquinas Institute for Theology and Culture and of the Pinkhares Archives. None of these descriptives, however, does justice to his theological habitus, which is nourished not only by the doctrinal tradition itself, but by literary, poetic, musical, and historical cultivation and insight that are extraordinary. One finds his theological conversation systematically bracing, pausing for a literary or historical or poetic epiphany, and then happily yielding to his gifts as raconteur. This makes discourse with Father Sherwin something like a theological travelogue for the Analogia Antis. I'm particularly pleased to be able to observe that among his many distinctions is the reception of the Charles Cardinal Journey Prize awarded by the Aquinas Center for Theological Renewal at Ave Maria University. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Father Sherwin, who will speak to us about the City of God, Collective Charity, and the Church, and in heaven. After an introduction like that, you feel like you just dropped dead. I mean, it's all, life has been fulfilled. Um, okay, I'm going to, I always feel like I'm a caged rat with a, one microphone, so I'm going to walk around. But first, uh, let's um, uh, begin our final talk the way we began our first talk. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of the faithful and enkindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by this same Spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through this same Christ our Lord. Amen. The Immaculate Heart of Mary. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I will resist the temptation to start singing Moon River and uh, just uh, use this walking around. Um... I want to first thank uh, Father Thomas Joseph and the organizers for the invitation to be here. It's been great to listen to all the talks, to participate in the discussions, and then have this opportunity to share some of my ideas, which uh, are just a continuation of my reflections on Aquinas' debt to Augustine, but also his attempt to uh, say Augustine uh, better than Augustine with the help of Aristotle, and then to look and see some of the things that Aquinas adds to uh, the discussion. Uh, and this in light of a talk that looks at kind of the social aspects of charity uh, in relation to the city of God. So I said, I kind of modified the title a little bit that I was given, Charity and the City of God on Earth and in Heaven. Uh, the Aquinas is aware at the, in his commentary on Ephesians that the scriptures and the fathers speak of the kingdom as a city and as a household, which is interesting because, of course, those are uh, levels of the common good, uh, the family and uh, the city, the civitas, the polis. And he draws out some of the implications of that. So I wanted, as we focus on the terminology of the city of God, to be aware that Aquinas is aware that it's only one of the ways in which the church is described. It's also described as a household. But the quotations that get everything going, glorious things are said of you, spoken of you, O city of God, throughout 
the patristic period this is drawn upon. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, and you have come to the Mount, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. All of those quotations are used in the different uh, liturgies of the church. Um, so yeah, here's a, a kind of general thesis and a more specific one with regard to charity. General thesis, Aquinas employs the insights of Aristotle to express more adequately the insights of Augustine. Or stated another way, Aquinas uses uh, Aristotle for Augustinian ends. Uh, I think it's a very helpful way. It, it, I'm not denying that there are differences, that Aquinas doesn't always agree with Augustine, but for too long, for a lot of interesting cultural historical reasons, we've emphasized Aquinas uh, as an Aristotelian. And I remember when I started to study uh, moral theology, uh, there were works that would, that especially by philosophers, who would say that Aquinas' moral vision is simply that of Aristotle, uh, which run renders um, many different texts, as Professor uh, McKay Fenoble has uh, emphasized in her dissertation and in many essays, it renders aspects of Aquinas' thought difficult to understand. For example, why are there gifts of the Holy Spirit attached to these virtues if these virtues are acquired? Um, if the gifts are actually uh, gifts of grace. So a better way to understand what Aquinas is doing is he uses Aristotle as an expert into human nature to better express than Augustine himself expresses the, the mysteries of revelation which, and the life of grace which elevate and heal nature. More specifically for the way in which Aquinas uses uh, Aristotle with regard to charity and especially the way in which Charity works in the life of the church. He draws on books eight of nine in the Nicomachean Ethics, which his generation were the first to have access to. Parts of the Nicomachean Ethics were known to earlier uh, medievals, but they didn't have eight and nine. And it allows Aquinas to present charity uh, in ways that he can help affirmations, help explain affirmations that Augustine makes in the day. Uh, Doctrina Christiana, about the order of love, uh, about how we should love God and neighbor. He's able to draw on the insights and the, the way in which friendship, because books eight and nine are about friendship in the ethics, how friendship promotes the common good of the polis, of the civitas. Aristotle affirms this. He says, beyond establishing justice in the polis, uh, justice is presupposed before you can then also then have a network of friendship, and that friendship is even more important than justice uh, for the proper functioning of the polis. Lo and behold, what you discover for Aquinas, he takes that and integrates it into his vision of charity, and presents charity as integral to the life of the city, and it's what makes the city function well, and to have peace and uh, concord and even joy uh, that is described in the Psalms. There is something, though, however, that Aquinas adds, and I think it's going to be that that's going to be the most interesting contribution uh, to what I can tell you today. But let's look and see the classic affirmation of the relationship between charity and the city of God. Two cities have been made by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. 
The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. Wonderful expression, God as the witness of conscience. Now what's interesting about this is in order for Augustine to make this affirmation, he has to develop what I would like to describe as a psychology of love. If you're going to say that you can use the word amor in a positive sense and a negative sense, you have to develop a psychology of love that you can then use to say, and when love is uh, rightly ordered, it is a good love or charity, but it can also be uh, badly ordered. So you're using the word love in more than one way, and that presupposes that you have a larger understanding of love. Now, he first starts to develop this in a kind of detailed way in the De Doctrina Christiana. Uh, it would be impossible to exaggerate how influential this work is going to be, especially for uh, what's known as the, the 12th century Renaissance, when you have uh, the transition from the cathedral schools to the early scholastic schools. Everyone starts using the distinction that Augustine uh, introduces here between things that should be loved by enjoyment, some things should be enjoyed, some things should be used. So what does he do after describing the difference between what is permanent and what is uh, passing and only a sign of the permanent? He now introduces uh, some things are to be enjoyed, the verb free, others are to be used, and there are others which are to be enjoyed and used. Those things which are to be enjoyed make us blessed. Those things which are to be used help and, as it were, sustain us as we move toward blessedness, in order that we may gain and cling to those things which make us blessed. Now, he, after this initial uh, presentation, his first expression will be, we should only enjoy God. And then we should use all other things, including our neighbor, ourselves, uh, all the good things of creation, as a means to God. Now that sounds worse than it, it, it was in Latin, because uti was one of the ways in which you could describe kind of a friendship of utility, kind of a, a commercial friendship. Uh, Cicero writes letters uh, recommending someone who's been uh, in his service to one of these outlying uh, Roman officials saying that what he wants to say in the, the normal translation say it is something like we've been on friendly terms for the last three, you know three or four years he's been very helpful and the word there is uti you know so i've I, you know i've been using him well during so it's 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 a shock if you were to translate it literally into english but none of the english translations translated that way so it had another nuance in latin nonetheless even i think augustine realizes that this is not a happy turn of phrase so that he will later on modify a little bit. But let's see what he means by enjoy. To enjoy something is to cling to it with love for its own sake. To use something, however, is to employ it in obtaining that which you love, provided that it is worthy of love. So enjoy related to love. So now he's going to Later on at, now we were in book three, which he wrote later. He's reflected more on what he really wants to say. 
I call caritas, the spirit's motion. So the spirit, the mind, it's, it's animus, not anima, but animus. I call charity the spirit's motion toward enjoying God for his own sake and enjoying oneself and one's neighbor for the sake of God. Cupidity, however, is the spirit's motion toward enjoying oneself, one's neighbor, or anybody, but not for the sake of God. Now, what does this mean? And when you'll, you'll see throughout Augustine's presentation, he has a tendency to describe this motion as an appetitus, a desire, a desire for God, a desire to enjoy God. When he gets to writing the city of God, he sees the limitations of this view of charity as a desire to enjoy God. Later, uh, you can make the argument that these developments were not seen by uh, the early medievals. But look what he does by the time he has to, in Book 14 of the City of God, where he introduces two loves create two cities, he now has to develop a mini psychology of love. What does he say? He resolves to love God and to love his neighbor as himself, not according to man, but according to God, is on account of this love said to be of a good will, bona voluntas. And this is, in scripture, more commonly called caritas, charity. But it is also, even in the same books, called love. So uh, he's looking at the Latin translation he's using. He sees sometimes it's amor, sometimes it's dilexio, sometimes it's caritas. All right. And it's a problem for him because the, there is no verb for caritas. Right? So it's always going to be amare or dilexio. Um, so, deligere. So then, what's he go on to say? A righteous will, recta voluntas, then, is a good love, and a perverted will, an evil love. Therefore, love yearning, love desiring, to possess what it loves is desire. Love possessing, and enjoying what it loves is joy. Now look at what he's put together here. He's put together the notion of voluntas, desire, and joy. And he's going to say, when the love is good, when, the, when the, the, the will is good, the love is going to be good, the desiring is going to be good, and the joy is going to be good. And when the voluntas is evil, the desiring is going to be wicked, and the pleasure uh, of attaining this uh, bad thing is also going to be a disordered pleasure. So he's developed a little psychology of love. Here, when he starts doing the uh, homilies, the sermons on John, you really see how he notices the limitations of his earlier vision. When he describes in uh, the, the, uh, the work called, I think, the 83, 83 questions, and then he's got uh, in um, several other places this presentation of charity as appetitus, desire for God. 
desire to enjoy God, um, he sees a problem and he makes it even clearer here. And this is a, I love this passage. You know, you, he, these, were, these were works that were read out loud by him. So it would have been fun to hear him give this. All love, dilexio, my dear brothers, presupposes a certain benevolence, benevolentium. Too often people think that Aquinas is the one, or that late medieval, uh, I mean, high middle ages introduced this idea of amor benevolentiae as property charity. It's already in Augustine. Okay. All love, dilexio, my dear brothers, presupposes a certain benevolentia for those whom we love. The Savior himself employed the verb to love, deligere, when he said to Peter, when he said, Peter, do you love me? We should not love deligere. We cannot love or cherish deligere vel amare, men in all ways. We should not, for example, love them in the sense attached to these words by the dissolute when we hear them say, I love squab. And this is a real problem for Augustine's earlier thought. If to love is to desire to enjoy something for itself, okay, but what does that for itself mean? Does that mean, you know, I really want to have that turkey because I want to have that turkey. I mean, I'm not eating it for the sauce. I'm eating it because I want the turkey. So, or, or is for itself something richer? You can make the argument that in his platonic scheme it was for something richer. But... It's not so easy to see. But here he's addressing it. When we say we love something, when we say we love our neighbor, we don't want to say we love them the way we love, you know, stuffed pigeon. You ask, why? Uh, because they want to kill them and eat them. These people say that they love these birds, but it's in order to destroy them. And that's an end of it. Everything we love with designs of eating it we love in order to extinguish them and to renew our strength. There's a scene in the Screwtape Letters when uh, there's been a coup and the nephew demon has participated in this, uh, Wormwood, has participated in this unsuccessful coup. And so now he's been given over to his uncle, Screwtape, and the description of the demonic love of the uncle for his nephew is the diabolical description of treating a spiritual being as if he's squab. And he describes the pleasure he's going to have in savoring his nephew. That's diabolical love. And this is what Augustine's addressing here. This is diabolical love. Um, we, don't, we should not treat others as their nourishment, but there is a friendship of benevolence. Amicitia benevolentiae. This is where Aquinas is getting this stuff later on. Maybe it's through the debates over whether angels love them, uh, God more than uh, themselves, all of that. But nonetheless, this, is, this is, goes way back to Augustine. Which leads us on occasion to serve those whom we love. Now, Augustine goes on to realize, well, what about God? You can't really render service to God. So he says, well, yeah, even if you can't do good to the person, you can still will the good for the other. You're celebrating the other. So all of this is already in Augustine, and Aquinas is going to try to develop this with the aid of Aristotle. Before moving to Aquinas, I want to also show that as he's presenting uh, his uh, politics with the centrality of charity, he then draws in the classical 
uh, Roman Greek tradition of the cardinal virtues, but he's going to describe them famously in terms of forms of love. I hold virtue to be nothing else than perfect love of God. For the fourfold division of virtue I regard as taken from four forms of love. Then he describes in his own kind of interesting way what he thinks the four cardinal virtues do, and then he's going to show how these forms of love are actually uh, ordered to God. So we may express the definition thus, that temperance is love seeking itself entire and incorrupt for God. Fortitude is love bearing everything readily for the sake of God. Justice is love serving God only and therefore ruling well at all else as subject to man. Prudence is love making a right distinction between what helps it towards God and what might hinder it. So the, the transformation of the excellences of the city transformed by charity. So what does Aquinas do when he gets a hold of this? He's going to filter it through uh, Aristotle's philosophy of nature. And he's going to, just as we saw, voluntas recta. Then you have uh, this desire that Augustine will talk about. And then the joy. Aquinas is going to uh, explain it in terms of Aristotelian insights, but he introduces this, this notion of complacentia. Um, it's not clear. He doesn't tell us explicitly why he chooses complacentia when he's talking about the other forms of love, because he thinks love as a principle is true for all things. You know, when the the stone falls, when the wallet drops, the principle of that movement is some affinity uh, for the wallet, for ground. And so without that complacentia for its proper place, there wouldn't be the movement and there wouldn't be the rest. He's going to apply this to the psychology of love in humans, but complacentia is used, I think, because of that first reference to love in the New Testament. This is my beloved son, Delectus, in whom I am well pleased, complacui. So the father loves the son with dilexio because of a antecedent complacentia. And so love is principle and then the movement that flows from it. But in the will, and this is where Aquinas does something that is uh, often, not often enough underlined. In the passions, the preceding complacentia leads to the desire for an absent good and the pleasure in the present good. But in the will, as the word implies, he says, the subsequent act and joy are the result of a complacentia that is chosen. Now think about that, because it's going to have implications for our notion of charity and the common good, and of the state or the city. No matter what you're feeling emotionally, spiritually you can choose the complacentia that is in your will, and it can then influence all that you subsequently do from love. That's true for a person. It's true for the good in all of its levels. It's true for 
your attitude towards uh, the family and towards the polis. All right, so this is what Aquinas ends up doing, and he draws on uh, vocabulary, as Guy Mancini has shown. It is vocabulary that comes from debates about uh, the angels, but he, he, I think, is willing to use it because of his reading of Augustine. You have this idea of the love that is in the will, right? Unlike the passions where you have this complacencia, you know, I, I like Brussels sprouts, and so I desire them. No, you've got something else here where I choose to will the good for the other with that movement of love that he's going to describe as amor amicitiae. But then you have the movement that is presupposed in that, the good that you will for the other. This wonderful cup of uh, uh, coffee there, an espresso from Rome. Okay, so amor concupiscentiae, the love that is proper to desire. So it's one act that has a twofold tendency. And so he's going to affirm, and he develops all of this in his treatment in the Prima Secundae of what love's act is. And where does he get this? He gets it from the way in which Aristotle describes the act of the verb here, philane. Uh, what does it mean to engage in this action of philane? And remember, this is exactly the verb in the form in, in Augustine, it's dilexio, that he addresses in the, uh, his sermons on 1 John. So this action here is what? So he says, you know, friendship, philia, and to engage in the action of the verb of Philane, what is it? Well, to love this way is to will to someone that which you think is good for that person and not, uh, and not for yourself. Me auto, how to. So, to love signifies to will to another all that you hold to be good and to do so for the other and not for yourself. And so he's going to say in the Prima Secundae, to love is to will good to someone. Amare est vele aliqui bonum. And that's where he's going to stay until he starts to look at it more closely. gets to the secunda secundae, the love which is in the intellective appetite differs from goodwill, benevolencia. He just told us in the prima secundae that love is to will good to another. Now he's telling us, well, it differs from that because of this union of affections, which of course was present in his earlier argument, right? Will the will of love flows from this chosen complacencia. He now makes it explicit. He now says, oh yeah, to love is to will good for the other, but I forgot to tell you in the Prima Secundae, it's not just benevolencia. So for example, I can be in a boxing match and I can will that guy there to win because I bet on him. But do I really love that person? Well, no. 
it's when you love the person, you're willing the good for the other out of a, a real union of affection. The boxer, I may not even know, I may not even care for him, but I, I want a good for him. So that's more than benevolencia, love starts with this union of affections. As much, inasmuch as the lover deems the beloved as somewhat united to him or belonging to him, and so tends towards him, accordingly, to love considered as an act of charity includes goodwill, but such dilection or love adds union of affection. So he's developed more explicitly what was already present in the prima secundae. What's that going to do for him? Um, first of all, let's see what he thinks, drawing on the uh, ethics. What does it mean to love a friend? What do you do when you love a friend? Joseph Pieper, in his book on love, is wonderful about this. and He draws wonderful quotations from contemporary philosophers. So what happens? You will, first of all, that your friend be and exist. That's the primary thing. And you could say that actually the, the way in which the complacency of the will cashes out is that everything you do and say, this is Pieper's way of expressing it, says to the other, it is good that you exist. It is good that you are in the world. So that's the very first thing that the friend uh, does for the friend, to affirm the existence of the other. But also a whole planetly of goods that would promote the thriving uh, of the friend. You will these goods for the friend, and you do good for your friend. And of course, you rejoice in the company of your friend. You have certain, uh, around the things that your draws you together, that draws you together as friends, you rejoice together in that. And this communion of heart and mind with the friend. There's a tendency to rejoice and to sorrow concerning the same things. Alright, so what does this begin to look like? The way in which this cashes out. And he presents this way when he has to draw on uh, the, the dynamics of the act, uh, of the human act. Love, there's that, the Augustine's uti here, and Augustine's frui, in the love of God. You will, the good you will for your friend is God. What you want, you draw them into the love. Augustine talks about putting everything in the world, all of your friends, into the stream of love that flows to God. Um, and, of course, you can love a good for yourself, right? The insight that Aquinas has here is that every spiritual love has a person as its object. Either yourself or someone else. And you're willing some good for the other. Now, when charity is described as friendship by Aquinas, he's going to draw on exactly what Aristotle presents in books 8 and 9. First of all, friendship is dependent upon communion, communion of life. Aristotle's word is koinonia, and it will be translated 
by Morbeki in his translation as communicatio. And this communicatio presupposes a union, of, uh, uh, an effective union, union of affections, which mutual benevolence, mutual beneficence, that is mutually known. You can't have, you can't be friends if you don't even know the other person's existence or that the other person wishes you well. So he will then, drawing on these insights from books eight and nine, give a definition of charity. Quedam amicitia, a certain friendship of man for God, founded on the communicatio of eternal beatitude. Both Plato and Aristotle and that period of Greek reflection, philosophical reflection, denied the possibility that there could be a communion of life between God and humans. So friendship with God is not possible. David Constant has shown very well that later on, uh, the Middle Platonists, and especially the Neoplatonists, are going to reinterpret Greek terms that meant to be dear to God as if it means to be friends of God. So for complicated later religious reasons, they want to read their own heritage back as if they are affirming friendship with God. But for Aristotle and for Plato, they say it, they state it very clearly, friendship with God is not possible because the distance is too great. But Aquinas is going to use Aristotelian principles to say the opposite, drawing on Paul. Communicatio and friendship. Every friendship is founded on a certain lived communion in the good. Charity is a friendship founded on a good which we participate, but it's a friendship that is made possible because of this koinonia that is established by God himself. God communicates a participation in his life. God is faithful. He who has called you to communion, ace koinonian. Did Paul read Aristotle? Who knows? With his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That because of this koinonia, and of course you can go to Second Peter and talk about the, the, the very great promises that we received to participate in the divine nature. So upon this communication, communicatio vitae, this amicitia filia is possible. And so, what we saw about union of affections, communion of life, union of affections, mutual benevolence, and mutual beneficence, that is mutually known, although God knows us better than we know uh, him. Normally, we know better than the other person whether we are their friend, but in this case, uh, we are the ones that are, we know God is our friend, but are we faithful to God? Not clear. All right, so, but there's this union of affections led to will what God wills, at least in general, love what God loves, God wills our salvation, we wish his glory. God says, let there be, and we respond by our lives, by our actions, by all that we do, by living the great amen. We are in his service. He, does, he gives us life and everything else, and we uh, serve him sharing in his ministry. So it's beautiful when Aquinas reflects on this, on his reflections on the uh, 
the um, Apostles' Creed, what does he say? We should know that not only the strength of the passion of Christ is communicated to us, but also the merit of the life of Christ. Whatever good all the saints might accomplish is communicated to those who live in charity. Because all of us are one. I am a partaker with all those who fear you and who keep your commandments. Thus it is that whoever lives in charity participates in all the good that goes on in the whole world. Now that's, we talked about the common good of creation, the common good of creation elevated in grace. The communion in a good that is communicable and that is enjoyed communally. And if, you, if we had time, we could look at all the different ways in which, as Aquinas unfolds the questions on charity, that follow the order of questions that are in the De Doctrina Christiana, how he will draw upon Aristotle to see how friendship with God promotes the life of the polis, of the civitas, by promoting a, union, a unity of purpose among the citizens, by promoting a just distribution of goods that goes beyond the strict requirements of justice, but lives the virtues of liberality and mercy, and a whole other list of virtues that Aristotle will present as making the city function well. Principle among this is education in virtue. It's very interesting. This year I taught a course on uh, dependent rational animals. We read chapter, each session we presented a chapter, and it's interesting to see how Alistair tries to see at what level is this possible. Is it possible on the level of the secular state? No. Is it possible simply on the level of the family? Well, no. It's got to be something that looks an awful lot like Aristotle's polis, which raises questions for all of us. Where do we find that today? And how is that possible today? It draws me into reflections when um, Baklav Havel was having to live in the kind of surreal environment after the uh, crushing of the Prague Spring, writing about how they were developing what Vaclav Benda described as a, a parallel polis. That's his terminology. He describes very much the structures that look an awful lot like Aristotle's notion of what a civitas, what a city, uh, would look like, but it's a parallel one, where people on their own are deciding to pursue the goods of uh, human life. What would that look like in our own societies? This is something I think that Aquinas' teaching is being, uh, in many ways, rediscovered by people who are living the Christian life and by necessity rediscovering what I think Vaclav Benda describes very well as a parallel polis. You could describe what's emerging in the homeschooling movement, for example, where families discover they can do wonderful things, but not everything. And so they begin to, these different families begin to work together for the education and virtue that has to exist 
on a level a little bit larger than the family, but definitely not on the level of the secular state. And then this way of living in the earthly city, but as citizens of the city of God. Charity unites not only one person to another with the bond of spiritual love, but also the whole church in unity of spirit. Education for virtue, friendship confirmed in, in hope because of the action of the spirit in this circulation of goods. Now, it's very difficult to find an image of envy. Almost always there's some form of image of um, uh, covetousness. But actually, if you look at those as kind of being rewards, you know, like they, some, they've been given rewards for something, you could see it maybe as an image of envy and not of covetedness. But what is envy? And the reason I put this here, it's like, well, it's like the screw tape letters. You can understand the good sometimes by looking at the, the back of the tapestry to see what sin does to goods. You can draw your attention to aspects of charity. Because when Aquinas looks at charity, he also looks at what happens when you love with charity? What happens when you will the good for the other? It produces joy and it produces peace. And there are actions that are against joy. For example, Achadia. If we had more time, it would be very interesting to look at all the different ways in which uh, our culture attacks us to lead us down the road of no longer taking joy in spiritual good, in acts of charity. But envy is another one that looks at more the social aspect. John of Damascus, envy is sorrow at another's good. Now why would I have sorrow at another's good? Because somehow, this is why it's a sin against charity, Somehow, I don't perceive the other's good as my good. The hallmark of charity is communion of life, koinonia, to such an extent that I rejoice in the accomplishments of those whom I love. You know, you see a parent with the joy on their faces when their child succeeds in a swim meet for the first time or does something. They're rejoicing in the good of the one they love. So envy hits at the root of charity as the love for the other members of the community because it somehow is leading us to perceive the other's good as evil for me, as something that I experience as an evil. Uh, and of course that comes from uh, not perceiving correctly what is my true excellence, as if it's a zero-sum game. Uh, that if uh, you know, if the one member of my community becomes a member of the Legion Legion d'Honneur, the other Frenchman in the community is going to be jealous. There's a wonderful scene in one of these French films of Louis de Finesse, where Louis de Finesse is this you know ambitious guy. And, his butler, who's been very active in these charitable organizations, unbeknownst to him, is made a member of the Legion of Honor, his butler. 
And so he's got the little, little wheel that they all have, can wear on their lapel. And there's a scene where Louis de Finesse is so jealous, he tears it off the lapel of his butler. Okay, so the way in which, if we're going to understand what charity does, one of the big effects of it is we begin to see the other's good as our own. You know, the, the, in English, we talk about the apple of your eye. It's the, in Latin, the little girl of your eye, that thing you hold precious. So precious, it's, it, it's you, it's your own eye. So you begin to see others' good as your own good. It, it begins to influence how you do other things. It begins to influence what you do, what you promote, what you celebrate, and even what brings you joy. And therefore, envy cuts at the heart of charity. Now I'm about to end. It's, uh, am I within more or less the time? Yeah, okay. That reads right into discord. <laughs> um, Concord does not mean having all the same wills. It means that you nonetheless live unity within discussion. It does not mean having, yeah, it's, it establishes union of wills but not union of opinions. So that you can have disagreements but within your primary uh, priorities. And discord therefore is another thing that it cuts at what charity is promoting. Not uniformity, you see this in the Cunite Nouvelles, the new communities, religious communities, they mistake union of opinions for union of wills, and they try to suppress uh, differing opinions as, because they think that's what charity requires. That's not what charity requires, but a certain uh, concord where you pursue the fundamental goods of your life together. Um, to draw this to a close, there's a thing that's very troubling, especially to my colleagues in, in Freiburg. Uh, Gilles Henry uh, recently mentioned it in a, uh, a course that we all collaborate in, the Corps Transversal, and that is the way in which it seems in Aquinas that he underestimates the importance for the eternal kingdom of the body and of other people. So do you need the body in order to be fully happy in heaven? And do you need other people to be fully happy in heaven? Now what Aquinas is wanting to say here is God is our happiness, right? God is our happiness. Objectively, God is the only one who makes us happiness. Our fulfillment is union with God. Now, he does not want to say that therefore others are just somehow an extra. But he does want to say, our happiness is God. But others are needed for the bene esse of happiness. Now, unfortunately, it's translated as well-being, because that is literally what it means. But our word well-being doesn't convey what bene esse means. Another way of saying it is, yes, you are fully happy in heaven but you're not, fully, you're not happy in a fully human way. So the bene esse is the way in which you're experiencing happiness. Yes, you're fully happy, but you're happy like an angel, and a solitary angel. 
if you don't have others and your body. So to experience happiness in a fully human way, you need these other things. Now, I assure you, it's not only Dominicans in heaven. This is just the Dominican neighborhood. Um, so I want to end with the ways in which Aquinas fills this out in his own presentation. In heavenly glory, there are two things which will particularly gladden the just, namely the enjoyment of the Godhead and companionship with the saints. For no good is joyfully possessed without companions, as Boethius says. And in Psalm 132, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. But enjoyment consists in two things, namely in the intellect's vision and in the will's delight. In heaven there will be the happy society of the blessed, and this society will be established, be especially delightful, since each one will possess all good together with the blessed, and they will love one another as themselves, and they will rejoice in the other's good as their own. It will also happen that as the pleasure and enjoyment of one increases, so will it be for all. The dwelling in you is as it were of all rejoicing. To give Augustine the last word. Well, first there is, Therefore, since man by divine grace is admitted into the participation of heavenly beatitude, which consists in the vision and enjoyment of God, he becomes something like a citizen, a socius, of that blessed society, which is called the heavenly Jerusalem. And back to that incredible 14th book of the city of God, the peace of the celestial city is the perfectly ordered and harmonious enjoyment of God and of one another in God. Societas fruendi Deo et invicem in Deo. Thank you. Is it work? Oh, thank you very much for your talk, Father. Uh, I have, I suppose, I'd be interested in clarification regarding um, what you're saying a bit later in the talk regarding envy. You mentioned that part of what's problematic about sorrow at another's good is it involves a certain kind of um, zero-sum attitude, which is uh, false or diverting, or sort of diverting from the truth of. Um, the sort of communion we have with others that, in which we should experience joy at the goods belong, that ha attained by others. What would you say about situations where, at least in some respects, there does seem to be a zero-sum aspect? So let's say you have, you have someone who's in a competitive labor situation and they need to feed their families, and someone else gets the job that's on offer. Is there a sense in which it, it Sorrow can be experienced in that situation um, lawfully and permissibly, not in the kind of abstract sense of I am unhappy that that person is experiencing a good, but sorrow in the sense of I am unhappy that I am deprived of something which would enable me to use the resources connected with it to uh, benefit loved ones in my charge or in my care. It's a good question. First of all, it's very, very difficult to not very quickly, just as the image I showed does, to slip from envy to the sin of coveting others' goods in terms of material goods. 
which is a sin against liberality, not a sin against charity. Uh, so it, it acquires this shema. So if we're going to stick just with envy, uh, there's nothing about the good of the other that diminishes my good. It is true that in when certain people receive other material goods, there is a zero-sum game, right? I mean, uh, if, uh, if I see someone drink the last two glasses of a wonderful Bordeaux, it means that I'm not going to have those two glasses of Bordeaux. So, but that's different than the notion of that person's good. See what I'm saying? That, that the, the person is honored somehow, or the person's virtue, something that belongs to that person. When I love that person, I'm rejoicing in that person having that good. Now, in the distribution of, of material goods, yeah, there is a, if the, uh, one person takes the last slice of pizza, I can be sorrowful that there are no more pizza. But I'm not sure I necessarily need to be sorrowful that the other person is enjoying the pizza. I, th I think that's a fair enough distinction. I just, I wonder if that starts making envy look like an, a rather intellectualized sin such that very few people would be tempted to feel sorrow in that very rarefied sense as a sort of temptation absent sort of conditioning themselves to John is enjoying a good and I dislike it as a good enjoyed by John. Like I think very often the temptation, to, at least speaking phenomenologically, I think very often people experience temptations towards envy not in this kind of intellectualized route. Um, now maybe in fact that isn't envy that they're, that's being described in that phenomenology, but it seems like it, envy starts becoming maybe a little abstract or rarefied in a way that I'm not sure would line up very much with how a lot of people would actually approach that, but, but I'll it, leave you to... Well, I mean, if you're saying that, 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 if you're saying that envy often comes accompanied by covetousness, I would agree with you. But that, that uh, envy is rarefied and therefore uh, only exists among rarefied spirits, I would beg to differ. <laughs> I think envy is uh, ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. That um, we do treat the good of others as if their having been honored somehow lessens me in a way that is completely unrelated. When a colleague from France publishes a book, that in no way makes it less possible for me to publish a book. And yet, that little worm of envy can be there. Now why is it that we're tempted not to celebrate uh, yet another book by that colleague who's so productive? And yet, if I really love that brother, that colleague, I would rejoice, especially since the gospel is being proclaimed. So if we really think about it, a lot of it has much less to do with covetousness because there's no way in which that book being published, published in another country, another, it's not even my editor, in no way is it a zero-sum game there. And yet, there's that little temptation to not see the other's good as my good. And yet it is. It is in the reality of the kingdom of God, and we often don't live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Thank you, Father Sherwin.
a quick question regarding what you said about uh, love. The love that's proper to the will is always directed toward a person. How would you apply that then to the love of the good of the family or the love of the common good or the political common good? If, if the love there to be avoided, as St. Thomas says, is the love of the tyrant, where yeah. we love that good for ourself or for oneself, if we would say instead, well, actually, the love of the common good should be for itself and not oneself. Who are the, who are the, who's the person or the persons that that, that love ends in? Yeah, this this came up. I mean, your dissertation forced me to look at this question, and I um, I don't have an easy answer. Uh, I think it's because Aquinas doesn't have an easy answer. But I think if you were to force Aquinas, he'd say, well, we're really talking about the mystery of the relations of the Trinitarian persons. And, and you're, you're drawn ultimately into the circulation of the one God in three persons. That the ultimate object, uh, when we love the common good of the family, we're being drawn into something very mysterious. And it does ultimately repose in something that transcends this world. In the, the creative circulation of the one God who creates and sustains from the act of the Father through the Son in the Spirit. I think, that's, I think that's really the way Aquinas would answer the question. And I think that's actually really the truth. That what makes the love, what makes a common good communicable is the mystery of our Creator God. And that's what we're being drawn into when we love common goods commonly or as communicable. That would be my answer. But, yeah, he doesn't address it explicitly. Thank you, Father, for your talk. Um, I appreciated how you put together in one place um, the passages that in Aquinas tend to be separated, where in some places he says the act of charity is benevolencia, and in other places he says it's, there's this affection, too. Mm -hmm. And my way of putting those two things together in a complete account has been to say that the act of charity is benevolence with affection. Um, but it sounds like you want to say more, that it's not just benevolence with affection, but the affection somehow is prior, and it the benevolence is, is. so it's benevolence from affection. Yeah, I think that's right. And so the affection is the root. Now, if that's true, what do you do with um, the passages in the little book on the perfection of the spiritual life, where he talks about the degrees of charity, mm -hmm. and he very fortunately distinguishes for us uh, the imperfect degrees. So what is, what's like, how do you love your, what's required for the love of enemies, so to speak? In the lowest and most imperfect degrees, it suffices just not to wish them any harm. You can't exclude them from your prayer either. Yeah, but then it belongs to the perfection, the higher grades, that you actually would show signs of affection to your enemy. So there it sounds like the affectivity or the display of affectivity belongs to the fruits of charity or the, the, out, the, yeah, the, the result of it, the effect of it, and not at the root of it. So I don't know, that's a, if you could maybe explain that. Any kind of distinctions would, would help there. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any way you can explain it, but I do think uh, you're right. He, in, helpfully in different places, first of all, he recognizes the spiritual desert patristic tradition of stages of growth in the Christian life. 
And he does it in two different ways. First of all, he recognizes the tradition of John Climacus that you, you can see lots of different stages. But the two that he focuses on are the seven stages of beatitude, but which even those seven he thinks you can break down into three. And they're basically, the Christian life is growth in charity. Uh, the part that I wanted to underline, and I don't think I want to exclude the other, but the part I want to underline is this, that the affectivity of the will, this spiritual reality, may or may not be accompanied by all the warm fuzzies of our emotional life. And we want them to be. But the spiritual affectivity of the will is, a, is an odd thing. That I'm not, it's almost like, you know, when they ask uh, uh, Joan of Arc, are you in the state of grace? You know, she, she lives in hope, but she doesn't know. We have certain things that make us feel like perhaps we are because the joy we take in doing good and all the rest. But do we know? So the, 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 the complacentia that Aquinas is describing is not psychologically available to us the way in which our emotions are. They are often accompanied by our emotions. But it would seem to me that the growth in charity has got to be, we would hope, in, involving the body's psychological supporting of us. But it's not always going to be there. Uh, but the stages of the growth, it would seem to me that there'd be an intensity, an increasing intensity of the affectivity, the firmness of that that underlies everything we do. So that one act disposes to a deepening of the, of the affectivity. But it, the growth comes from God's grace, you know, when he wants to. Yeah, and the different types of affection, right. But we're not always going to have the psychological, what we would call psychological affection. Um, but I mean, I, and this is very concrete. You know, I can see the, it, it works the other way. You know, I see my mom dealing with her daughter-in-law, and she chooses to place Catherine in her, in the, in the circulation of her love, in, in willing good for her, even though I know on the emotional psychological level this is taxing. But she does everything she can to complement the meal, to complement the way in which you know she's serving at the local Presbyterian church as an elder. I mean, she try, she goes as far as she can, um, and that's that's coming from a choice that underlies those actions, which I do, really do believe are acts of love, even though psychologically she's in a little bit of turmoil. Um, Father, my general question is, what are the political implications of your talk? And more specifically, I'm wondering about the relationship between charity and um, like the natural moral virtues. I know very little about the theological virtues, but I know that there are some in my field who would say that the infused virtue of charity somehow like alters the rational mean of the moral virtues such that they require acts of us that like you wouldn't know about um, if the virtues are conceived in strictly a natural light. So how would you respond to that? And just like, what are the relationship between the two? That's a big question. That's a very difficult yeah. question. Um, I, I'm not going to be able to say very much in the time that I have about uh, the difficult relationship between acquired excellencies, excellences and infused excellences in Aquinas. Aquinas I think reads scripture properly 
in recognizing that there are things that are the traditional words for virtue in the New Testament. Uh, there is um, uh, sophrosune, there is dikaiosune, there is phronesis, and they are described as things that have come from God, uh, that we participate in in Jesus. They, are dis they seem to be dispositions that are the work of grace. Uh, and then the difficulty becomes, what is their relationship between those dispositions that are the work of grace and uh, the acquired excellences that the pagans knew about and described? And matter of fact, the New Testament authors are drawing on practice of the Old Testament translators and the Old Testament authors who wrote in Greek, drawing upon um, uh, the, the vocabulary of the, of the Greek ancients. So the Book of Wisdom talks about that the wisdom teaches and it gives the list of the four cardinal virtues in the traditional vocabulary. Um, that's a difficult thing. What's the relationship between these two things? Aquinas will say that we have those infused virtues for what is necessary for salvation, which leads me to believe that there is a kind of, and so it gets us back to this earlier question about the, living a life of grace is going to be also having dispositional effects upon just our normal human psychology. And so the, there are certain things that you, by God's grace, you do really well, but that doesn't necessarily, we're not supermen, you know. So when Mother Teresa wrote her letter to the judge in the, in the Charles Keating case, and almost unbelievably the judge was Lance Ito, but not yet famous for later cases, she writes this letter to Lance Ito saying, you know, go, go uh, easy on this poor old Charles Keating. And, and Judge Ito responds exactly as he should have by saying, look, he's absconded with all of these, these poor retired people's uh, pensions. Instead of asking me to go easy on him, you should be asking him to cough up whatever money he's still hiding. So you can say Mother Teresa is a saint, and she had great judgment about things necessary for her salvation. But you can also say she lacked political prudence when she wrote that letter. And so there's a, a complicated relationship between these things. And more than that, I'm not sure I can say. I think this will be the, the last question. Thank you, Father, for those, those remarks. Uh, I wanted to make two points and elicit your comment about them. Uh, First, regarding envy, this really depends, doesn't it, uh, upon the good of the one whom is being, who is being envied, being a bonum anestum, sure. which is why, for example, if, if someone is named protector of the realm who is a vicious murderer, we would be right to be saddened by that good. Uh, and it's not just a question of an honor but only of an honor or of any, any material, insofar as it's a, a moral good. And then on, on the other point uh, regarding in what the uh, love of the common good reposes at the natural level, uh, I wonder why uh, Father Thomas Joseph's judgment here from the earlier session that God is known uh, naturally as common good and we know that God is personal. We don't know in what way. We don't have a full, we, we, we don't properly understand in what way, but we know naturally, that is, it is available to natural reason that God is personal. And so to, when we know 
that uh, God is the extrinsic common good of the universe, all of this is reposing, the love of, of the common good is such, analogically is reposing on that love which follows upon the natural gratitude for creation. Yeah, I mean, I think you're describing very closely what the, the Romans would call familial pietas, which was not a secular, postmodern, I mean, it was a religious notion. And, and the ideals of those living pietas in the family, there are, you know, you can even go to the Greeks, Penelope. Uh, the, you have people who are models of, of that, well, what I think you're trying to describe. Because I, I, I do think those are, the, the attitude towards family uh, and to the city are religious attitudes for, even for the pagans. Yeah. Now, with regard to this, I cut out between here and here, there's a bracketed thing that I cut out, just to not, and where he talks about sorrow with regard to the good of our enemies. And of course, that's proper. You can, but he says it, he follows Aristotle in saying, but that's born of fear. But it is, it's, it's an appropriate fear. That is, the fear, and that's the whole complicated thing, the way in which something that is threatening, and that produces the emotion of fear, can be judged in somehow it, it, you bring, to the extent that it's present to you, you can experience sorrow, but it's, it's sorrow born of the fear of the eventuality, that, the, that, your, that your enemy's good is going to redound to your evil. And, uh, yeah, he, he recognizes that as not, sorrow in your enemy's good is not the sin of envy. It is a sorrow born of the fear that this is going to actually redound to your evil. Yeah, that's right out of Aristotle, and Aquinas accepts that. Well, let's uh, rejoice together in the good of Father Michael Sherwin, who just gave a very good talk. <laughs>